when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing whether the prospects of a second referendum are gradually rising and whether the UK is heading for a Norway-style relationship with the EU after Brexit. I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Picard, our chief political correspondent, columnist Robert Shrimsley, economic commentator Martin Sanbu, and deputy opinion editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. If you like this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And if you're feeling particularly generous, then do leave us a nice review on the iTunes store. So once again, it's Brexit and nothing else in the news. And one of the big stories this week is whether the Labour Party is beginning to swing round towards supporting a second referendum or a so-called people's vote. There were some very interesting comments from John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, who seems to be gradually changing the party's position. But is this fundamentally going to mean anything if and when Theresa May's deal comes to the House of Commons in a couple of weeks' time. Jim Picard, let's begin with this John McDonnell interview. Now, he's obviously very much a power base within the Labour Party. He has a history of laying the groundwork for policies for Jeremy Corbyn, the actual leader, to change party policy on this. He was talking about Brexit this week. What did he say? So the thing to remember about Labour policy on Brexit over the last two years is that it's been a sort of sequence of crab-like sideways movements often barely discernible, which only in retrospect have been obviously policy changes. And what happened with John McDonnell this week, Corbyn's leadership, they have totally played down the idea that John McDonnell has said anything new at all, because as we know, for the past couple of months, a second referendum is one of the possibilities within Labour's policy on Brexit, and they're saying nothing has changed. Now, what John McDonnell said to Laura Koonsberg of the BBC is that he thought now that a second referendum was inevitable. That is new. He also said to the Guardian event that he himself would in those circumstances back Remain, whether or not the party did. And he also said that the referendum would have to have the option of Remain and not have the option of No Deal. Now, the other thing, I don't want to bore people to death with this kind of techie inside the weed stuff, but when we had a briefing from Seamus Milne that day, he said... No, 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 no. People's vote is one of the options should we fail to get a general election should the deal fall. John McDonnell did not say that it was one of the options. He used the word the. He said to Laura Koonsberg, the second referendum is the option. So that's where we are, Robert. The whole background to this is that John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn are lifelong Brexiters from a very left-wing perspective and have spent a long time voting against integration with Europe. But they're also very strong Democrats as well as in how they see the country's process. So they've been reluctant to support the Remain campaign during 2016. They gave very lukewarm support to remaining in the EU. And the day after the referendum, in fact, Jeremy Corbyn came out and said, we need to trigger Article 15 immediately. So you've got this inbuilt suspicion around the Labour leadership. They do actually want to leave the EU. But increasingly, the whole Labour movement, that's momentum, Labour MPs, the Labour Party membership and Labour Party voters are feeling somewhat different about this. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I think you summed it up correctly. But I think when you look at Jeremy Corbyn in particular, I think your analysis is correct. But I also think in the pantheon of issues for him, the European Union is just not that high. There are other things that matter more. And I think the same is true for John McDonnell. And they can see the way the Labour Party is going, a very clear push towards backing the second referendum at the Labour Party conference. They are even strongly backed by Momentum, which is their own cheerleaders. So I think they understand where the party wants them to go. They have good strategic reasons for being careful about this. There are a lot of seats, particularly in the north, they would worry about jeopardising. So their position until very recently has simply been to be less Brexity than the Conservatives. And strategically, that made a lot of sense. But the problem is we're getting down to the end game here and there is no shelter anymore. And I think what is happening is they are simply realising the consequences of their decision-making process. If you think the deal is going to fall, then they're going to try for a general election. If you don't think that's going to happen, which is the general view, they are going to end up backing the second referendum in the end. And I think all that's really happening is they are recognising that the choices in front of them are narrowing and that they're going to have to start facing up to those choices. So the key point, Jim, is going to be the 11th of December when we're expecting the meaningful vote on Theresa May's Brexit deal and the assumption in Westminster is that Theresa May will lose that vote and there's lots of different expectations whether it will be by 20 votes, 60 votes or 100 votes depending on who you listen to. Maybe 200. Could be 200 votes as well. We'll see what happens when that vote happens. But at that point, you would come to Labour's first option which is to call a general election because John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn as Robert have said, they just want to get in power. And so they could then call a confidence vote. I think there's again an assumption that they would probably call a confidence vote quite soon after that because it would be the natural thing to do. Theresa May's authority would be even more weakened than it is now and it would be the government. But there's no basis they would win that confidence vote and then they reach a critical decision point. Exactly. So they've been saying month after month that they're seeking this general election. But it's very, very hard to imagine or envisage any Tory MPs or DUMPs voting for an election which could get Jeremy Corbyn into number 10. And therefore, the whole thing's been a fantasy all along. And it's interesting that John McDonald did admit this week, that was another crucial thing, he admitted that that would be very difficult. So while others are still maintaining the pretense, McDonald's been quite candid about that. And then we get into those circumstances of what next. Now, there's been a lot of toing and froing about procedure. There's a very good quote from someone today saying that Erskine May may prove more influential than Theresa May when we come down to this. And the questions about whether amendments come before the meaningful vote or whether they come after the meaningful vote. And there's going to be the big question of which alternatives MPs start to coalesce around as other options start to fail. There are two points. The first is that up until now, what Corbyn has done, what the Labour Party has done, has made strategic sense. But the point is, if they don't get in behind the referendum at some point, they will get tagged for this by the voters who support Remain. They will say, you stopped us getting a second referendum. And they will be blamed for it in a way they haven't been blamed up till now. And the second point is, as Jim's sort of been saying, if you take the view and everybody says, and it is clearly numerically true, there is no majority for no deal in Parliament, then we are coming down to two or three options. There is the Norway option, but fundamentally the two big choices are Theresa May's deal, a variant of it, or the second referendum. And my guess is that it's going to come down to those final two. You back her deal or you back the second referendum. That will be the choice that Parliament finally makes. It might be quite a lot further away than we've all assumed it was going to be, but that is the final choice. And if you don't want to back Theresa May's deal, then Labour will have to get behind the second referendum. And in terms of Labour's thinking, the ideal situation from their point of view would have actually been, ironically, had May's deal gone through, and then they wouldn't have had to have confronted the fact that their 
position on Brexit is a massive self-contradictory fudge. And the more it looks like her deal is going to fail, the more they have to provide clarity on what they're going to do. And it feels a bit like they're in a building where doors are closing one after another. And they would have loved to have had Brexit, but no blame for Brexit. Their hands are now going to be dipped in whatever we end up with. I think that's absolutely right. But I also think the one thing we have to factor in, as Seb indicated, and you did too, that we don't really know how big the rebellion against Theresa May's deal is going to be. There is quite a lot of people talking this up, perhaps in the expectation they can get the numbers much further down and it doesn't look like quite so much of a defeat and that she can have another go at it. But this is a fundamental point for everybody. If she can get any momentum for her deal, it will probably carry her through to the end. And the more Labour starts talking about the referendum, the more she can go back to her own Brexit supporters and say, look, you guys, this is serious now. If you don't get behind this deal, Brexit's going. And you've noticed that every bit of messaging from Conservative HQ and Cabinet Ministers this week has been saying Labour wants to stop Brexit. And they took that John McDonnell clip that you referenced, Jim, and put it out with the line, this is proof Labour is against Brexit. And the more they can do that, the more they can try and rally people within the Conservative Party who are generally pro-Brexit or at least pro-getting on with Brexit and against Labour's position there. But the crucial thing to say is that Even if Labour changes position, and I think as Robert's written in the column, that would be totally decisive, it still doesn't mean it's going to get through Parliament because so far by my count, there's eight Conservative MPs who've said that they are pro a second referendum. So Sarah Wollaston, chair of the Health Select Committee is one. Dr Philip Lee, a former Health Minister, is another. Dominic Grieve, a former Attorney General. These sort of people. You'd still need to get more Conservatives. And the question is, if Labour then comes out, one would assume you would get more Conservatives to have the cover to say, OK, now this thing is reality, we're going to go for it. But there's still all sorts of questions. You know, how would it happen? When would it happen? Mm -hmm. What would be on the ballot paper? And we'd obviously need to delay Article 50 for it in order to happen. There are a few points here. You're right at the moment, as long as this deal is the primary focus of attention, you're not going to get lots and lots of Conservatives coming out for a second referendum. But when they're staring at no deal, if Theresa May's package has fallen comprehensively, then I think you're going to start seeing quite a lot. I was talking to a minister a couple of days ago. It was very clear to me that forced with this choice, he would back a second referendum, someone who's never mentioned in these conversations. And I think there are a lot of others like that. So I think Conservatives would eventually coalesce around that if that was the only alternative. Exactly. And, and what's really interesting on this one is that clearly if Theresa May ends up in a position where it was her Brexit arrangement versus a referendum, immediately the letters would go in. You know, I had this from a former cabinet minister yesterday who said if she tries to do something like that or if she tried to pivot towards Norway, the letters will come in. But that is the ultimate test of the Brexiteers. It's not impossible that actually, faced with the alternative option of no deal, we think there are quite a few Tory MPs, like Robert was saying, who would much rather have a but second referendum to... than an economic disaster. I mean, you do. I mean, again, Seb touched on this. What exactly is the question of the referendum? That's a huge, huge issue, even if we get across the point where we think we're going to get to one. If, as John McDonnell said, no deal was not one of the options, then that's a pretty dodgy referendum from the point of view of anybody who really believes in Brexit. If there are three options and a preferential voting system, one, two, three, then the chances are very high that May's deal wins. But on the other hand, if May's deal has been comprehensively rejected by Parliament, does it get on the ballot paper in the first place? Well, on that, we saw some very interesting polling that came out on Friday that put this prospect to the country. And if it was Remain versus a no-deal Brexit, the no-deal Brexit still came out on top by 52%, which is quite extraordinary when you think about all the warnings we've heard from Mark Carney this week, talking about a huge hit to the economy in the event of a no-deal Brexit. But a lot of people, Jim, haven't really quite come to terms with what that means, perhaps. Well, I think they're buying into the Boris Johnson, David Davis argument. That, Project fear. That 
Well, they're buying into the argument that no deal is the equivalent of a kind of clean Brexit, if you like, a Brexit where there's no umbilical cord with the ghastly Europeans and we can just go off and sell around the world with our buccaneering trade deals. I think the warnings about the economic impact are falling a bit on stony ground with existing levers. We're talking about the question of three options. I mean, firstly, I think that if you go down some kind of weird proportional representation or AV type vote on the second There's referendum the public would hate it representation, the Jim public would hate it and they're not used to that kind of vote and they'll be very suspicious the other alternative is if you have three options and let's pretend Remain gets 40 the deal gets 30 and no deal gets 30 you're in this awful constitutional mess where the winner is Remain and yet Leavers has 60% now how the hell do you well, that's why, get through that that's why you can't have that option you've either got to have two choices and it's yes no or you've got to have a preferential voting system because there has to be a majority for whatever is ultimately decided. In a way, the cleanest referendum question would be, do you accept or reject this Brexit deal? Yes, no, because every referendum we've had in British history is not too many. What happens if they say no? Then where are we? Well, we're in the same mess that we are at the moment. But every referendum we've had has been accepting or rejecting a proposition. So you can't say, do you still want to remain in the EU or not? Because we sort of had that vote. So the clearest way is, do you accept or reject Mrs May's deal? But as you said, then what happens? I think the notion that we would have a second referendum in which Remain was not an option, however logically sound the point you make is, given that the people who are going to drive a second referendum through are primarily Remainers, it's not possible. And I think we've kind of forgotten to some extent what the general public must be thinking of all this. And even though a lot of the general public don't like Theresa May's deal, as far as we understand it, the idea that they might stomach a second referendum after they thought this matter was settled reasonably comprehensively two years ago, and then you start thinking through again what the potential results could be, we could get the same result, then what? We could get a vote for Remain, but by a smaller margin than two years ago. All of these avenues lead in quite alarming directions and unless you have like a massive overwhelming Remain vote, but no poll is suggesting anything Mm. like that at all. And the other thing as well, which I'm not sure if you agree this is true, Robert, or not, but I think there is this possibility that you get some kind of anti-establishment political movement here because, as you've seen a lot of other European countries, nativist populists have a big opening when they can attack all politicians, not just of the left or the right. And if you ended up with a people's vote advocated by mostly Labour, but also some Conservatives or even a Conservative Prime Minister, then you will get something, be it a resurrection of UKIP or whatever it may be, saying, you gave the politicians an order, they didn't listen to you, now you need to vote against all politicians. And that would essentially be backing a no-deal exit. And if that happens, then Westminster would have absolutely no choice but to implement it whatsoever. Oh, I mean, I think the populist movement issue is, is the really big concern about the path of a second referendum. I think, you know, there are these people who say the Leavers would boycott it. Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. But they would have a very, very powerful argument, which is you voted for Brexit. You told the establishment what you wanted. The establishment clubbed together, made sure we got a crap deal and then told you to vote again because you got it wrong the first time. You need to tell these people what's going on. If you thought Nigel Farage and UKIP were not nice, I think you would look back on them fondly after what would happen in the next referendum. We're already seeing the way UKIP has drafted in Stephen Yaxley-Lennon, who likes to go under the name of Tommy Robinson. This man is waiting to try and lead a new populist movement. He's going to lead what could be a nasty demo in London quite soon. I think it's a very, very serious risk that you could put the burners under a populist movement the like of which we haven't seen since the 30s. I had a conversation only a few weeks ago with someone who works very closely with Jeremy Corbyn who said, you, know, you think about how much traction Tommy Robinson, inverted commas, is getting at the moment without really a legitimate grievance. 
by reversing Brexit, we would be handing a massive, genuine grievance to these people. And when you look at Tommy Robertson's rhetoric, for those who haven't followed this story, he's recently been in prison for contempt of court. The speech that he gave outside once he's released from prison was all about anti-establishment rhetoric. It wasn't about his own failings. It wasn't about the cost. It was all about the media, the politicians, the establishment. I am the only truth teller. And I think this would be the perfect thing. So all those who have very legitimate reasons for wanting to have a second referendum, it's something they should be very well aware of. I mean, I think that's the point. As you say, if you see the traction he gets without a truly legitimate cause, forcing through a second referendum, overturning the decision of the last one, would hand that legitimate cause. A lot of people would quite reasonably say, the establishment has stitched this up, we gave them an answer, they didn't like it, they frustrated our views, they're united against us, you need to overturn the establishment. I think it'd be a very powerful argument. Well, I don't think they would have much sympathy with the idea that, well, we put forward all these different varieties of Brexit, but we just couldn't get a majority within the House of Commons. They would look at that and just say, well, you're bloody establishment unable to sort it out so you are no good at what you do you're not listening to us it's your responsibility as the politicians to get something through parliament they're not very interested in the argument that the eu won't give some of those answers they just want the professional politicians to deal with it and sort it out you're listening to ft politics the podcast on british politics from the financial times As well as talk of second referendum, all the Brexit chatter this week has been about Norway. With Mrs May's deal looking as if it's not going to get much traction in the House of Commons, everyone in Westminster is on hunt for Plan B. And that Plan B has raised the prospect of the UK going for a much softer Brexit. This is the so-called Norway Plus option, where the UK would remain in the single market and the customs union and still have many of the obligations of EU membership. For some people, this could be a Hail Mary pass to avoid chaos, but for others, it's Brexit in name only. So, Martin Sandbu, can you give us a rough outline just of what exactly this Norway option would entail and what it would mean for the UK? Yes, Norway plus. It's two words, two parts to it, really. The Norway part refers to the European Economic Area, or EEA, which is an agreement that was set up 25 years ago between the members of the EFTA trading bloc, European Free Trade Area, who didn't want to join the EU but wanted to be part of the single market. So that's Norway, but it's also Iceland and Liechtenstein. It's not Switzerland, which is the fourth EFTA member. It basically involves those countries through a fairly kind of convoluted institutional structure signing up to all the legislation coming out of the EU that governs the single market. That includes all the four freedoms, goods and capital, but also services and people. The other part of Norway Plus, the plus bit, is the customs union. So Norway is not in a customs union with the EU, and there are border checks between Norway and Sweden, the EU border, to check rules of origin and different tariffs and so on. Even though there are no tariffs between Norway and the EU, because they don't have the same external tariff, there are rules of origin to check. So that wouldn't work for the UK in terms of the Ireland question, and that's why they've added on this plus, Norway plus. So that would mean a customs union, common external tariff with the EU. So those, that's basically what it would look like. Just one important thing, it might not mean literally Norway or the EEA membership. It might mean something like it. And noises you're hearing from Brussels is that while the EU would be prepared to create something like this for the UK, it's not clear that it would be prepared to let 
the UK into the EEA as it currently exists. So the challenge with this idea, Miranda, is that it's obviously been on the table from the beginning of the Brexit negotiations where Michel Barnier had his famous chart which showed where Britain's red lines were and which options would be in or out. But when Theresa May announced very early on in the process would be out of the single market, out of the customs union and outside the jurisdiction of the ECJ, that essentially meant that the Norway option was ruled out. And the issue with this proposal is it really doesn't go to the heart of any of the reasons people voted for Brexit. You know, the two fundamental things, from my view, are money and immigration. As Martin has just said, being in a Norway-style arrangement would mean free movement people would continue, and it would also mean we're essentially paying for access to the single market, which, again, I think to a lot of people doesn't feel quite right. So it's really interesting you should say that, and I think that you've touched on the fundamental problem with the idea of any sort of Brexit compromise. So if Mrs May's deal goes down and she can't get it through the House of Commons, this Norway plus idea being energetically and quite successfully proposed by Nick Bowles has become a sort of default option plan B, or i.e. it's the only thing that anyone can think of as a plan B But it is a compromise and it compromises on key areas that drove the arguments in the referendum, as you've pointed out. Not only the ones you mentioned, but also the role of the European courts, because that whole idea behind the slogan take back control was also about where decisions are made. So it is incredibly flawed. However, the only two other options really are to throw the dice in another referendum, which could end up in no deal or to just reject the very idea of compromise and go straight to no deal, which some on the Tory benches would like to do anyway, or to somehow engineer a rerun of the original referendum and find ourselves just back in the EU as full members. So the thing is, I think what you have to work out is whether not just the particular principles of an EEA-type deal could be got through the Commons and would be acceptable to the British population, but also whether there's actually appetite politically at the moment for any sort of compromise because I think that's sort of on the wane. I think for all this energetic activity in favour of Norway Plus, actually what you're getting is people increasingly polarised in the House of Commons between hard leave or rerun the whole thing again and hope for a Remain vote. On your particular point about the compromises, it's very interesting this idea on freedom of movement. The proposers of going to Norway Plus are going to have to have a better answer than there's an emergency break on immigration in the EEA because it's for very exceptional circumstances only and it's not designed for a large economy like the UK to essentially limit the flow of immigration from member states. And that's a huge issue because Number 10 Downing Street thinks the entire referendum was essentially about immigration and they're determined to stop it. And the thing as well, Martin, is even though there is some kind of movement here towards this compromise. What is the European perspective? Because we've heard some noises from people in Norway saying they're not being particularly happy with the idea because obviously Norway dominates the EEA and EFTA at the moment, but the UK would be a very big fish coming into what's a relatively small pond. Yes, I'm deeply confused about what problem Norway Plus is supposed to be the solution to in the UK context. The rationale or argument seemed to be that actually there are some opt-outs, some emergency breaks. It's not phrased in those terms, but it seems like the argument is that actually this lets us have some 
cake and eating it after all. Now, if that's the reason for going towards Norway Plus, that would not work very well for the other EEA members, such as Norway, nor would it work very well for the EU. And just to put a very illustrative fact on the table, Norway has had more work immigration from the EU, especially the new member states, than the UK has had relative to population. And it was never considered to try to invoke this emergency safeguard mechanism. It was not even contemplated. And the idea that the UK would enter this sort of system with the view that something like that scale of immigration from Europe would warrant that is just simply unacceptable, both to the non-EU EEA states, such as Norway, that would upset the whole balance, nor for the EU. The point of the EEA agreement is to create common rules for everyone across the single market, even for those states that are not in the EU. And if the UK thinks that entering the EEA is a way to not have identical rules on all of these issues, then it's just badly mistaken. And this is why I was saying at the beginning that what you hear in Brussels now is that a Norway-style arrangement could be considered for the UK, but it probably wouldn't be the EEA that actually exists. It would be a parallel bilateral agreement that's modeled, tries to achieve the same thing, but probably one that's tighter because the UK seems to want to abuse the kind of loopholes or vagueness that exists in the EEA agreement for purposes that were never intended. So there's a trust issue really here that the UK still hasn't quite squared up to. Yeah, I think that's absolutely key, isn't it, Martin? The idea that actually what the EU have objected to the whole way along this negotiation process for the last two and a half years with the UK is the idea that the Brits are trying to cherry pick the whole time and to opt into the bits which are convenient for us and to opt out of any rules which we might find a bit restrictive or which we feel sort of limit our sovereignty. And if we have to go through another set of negotiations over arranging something like the EEA arrangement for ourselves, I think those concerns will come right back up again. You know, what are the Brits trying to do? You've already seen a big row over Mrs May's withdrawal agreement in terms of the level playing field arrangements. You know, the idea that Britain mustn't be allowed to sort of exploit the looser arrangement to competitively undercut the rest of the EU. The Europeans are going to be very, very worried that Britain will want to do that kind of thing all over again in the next set of negotiations if it comes to it. But Miranda, just to offer a slightly different perspective on this, the reason we're talking about this in the first place, and I think even the advocates of the Norway Plus, and this has mainly been driven by Nick Bowes, who's a former minister and a close colleague of David Cameron, but also of Michael Gove. And there is some talk around Westminster that if Mrs May's deal fails, Michael Gove may come out and support this Norway Plus plan as an alternative. The reason this is getting any traction is the fear of chaos and of a no deal because as Mrs May's deal is not going anywhere and there is no majority in the House of Commons for a much looser Canada-style relationship, then there does seem to be that within the political parties you can see a majority for Norway. It would require cracking open the parties to do that. And I think if you ended up with the House of Commons mandating the government in some form for a Norway-style relationship, it would have at least a hundred very angry Conservative MPs, a bunch of very annoyed Labour MPs in those northern seats. So essentially, in a way, it could mean a big fracturing of the political process as it currently stands if this was to ever get to that point. Yes, absolutely. So there have been voices on the Labour backbenches all the way 
long that have been recommending this option. There are now these very loud voices of the Nick Bowles campaign. And as you say, it has sympathy inside the cabinet. You know, he said that at least four cabinet ministers have called him in to explain his idea to them. And also, weirdly, it seems, it actually has potential support from even the DUP, the SNP, the Liberal Democrats, and as you've said, crucially, chunks of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. So, I mean, at the moment, it's the only one of all of these Plan B options that has any chance of success. But as we've been discussing, it's fraught with difficulty. And yes, you're absolutely right. If sections of the Conservative Party decided to push through this compromise deal, they would possibly split the party. And that's been one of the dangers of this whole story of the Tories and Europe over decades. And that would be a crunch moment for them, potentially. Also, I have to say, it's such a difference from the idea of pure take-back control Brexitry that you might end up having to have another referendum anyway on staying in the EEA, in which case you would have two different sections of the Conservative Party on different sides of a referendum. And that's toast for the party. Could I just highlight how this debate is entirely internal to the UK? The proposal, this Norway Plus proposal, is to pass the withdrawal agreement as is and then ask for a tweak to the political declaration about future negotiations that points more directly to a Norway Plus model. But Norway Plus is entirely compatible with the political declaration as it stands. So the the response from Europe would just be, well, you can have it there. The political declaration says whenever you make up your mind, we can discuss either a Canada-style thing with a backstop in Northern Ireland or a Norway Plus model. All of this is on the table. So it's really a bit confusing if you look at it from the outside, what it is that this whole dispute is about. It really comes down to what can pass the British Parliament as opposed to what makes sense you know, in terms of rational policymaking. That's, I think, a very crucial point, Martin, because the people who were campaigning, as it was known as Norway for now, and it's now sort of been renamed Norway plus this campaign, essentially wanted to junk the withdrawal agreement and find some other way to enter EA after. But I think it's been made very clear from the EU side, you might know better than I do, that the only way to get to Norway is through this deal. So I think the idea would be is if Mrs. May's deal fails, you rewrite the political declaration and you go to there. But one scenario that I could see if that happening is that if the House of Commons tried to mandate the government to do that, then the Conservative Brexiters would most likely move against Theresa May in this case because this group of 80 to 100 MPs who really don't want Norway, because as Miranda said earlier, it is patently not taking back control, they would then try and get a new prime minister who may move us towards a managed no-deal scenario as it's called. So really, this would just still be creating huge constitutional questions. It wouldn't particularly solve anything. No, you're absolutely right, Seb. And the other thing is that if it actually comes to May's deal going down, they don't really like the idea of this Bowles plan B or also don't think they can get that through without splitting their own party. What are the guarantees that the House of Commons will prevent a no-deal exit? Because if the Tory party then cobbles together something, which, as you've said, they're calling managed no-deal, there are a lot of people on the anti-Brexit side of politics who say very airily and confidently, it's fine, the House of Commons as a whole will never allow no-deal to happen. But we still don't know how they're planning to stop it. And Hilary Benn has been saying uh, on the Labour side that he'll put down a amendment to block no deal. It's very unclear how parliamentary procedures would actually allow that to happen at the moment. 
And finally, Martin, from your conversations with people in Brussels and what have you, what is the sense that the EU is able or willing to do if Mrs May's deal is not passed? Because that's really the million-dollar question everyone in Westminster is wondering because the ways the deal doesn't pass are quite obvious now. But what happens after that is so unclear. Yes, and there is, of course, a European Council summit just a few days after the scheduled date for the vote. What seems universal in Brussels and the member states' capitals is that if the UK Parliament votes down this deal, the ball remains in the UK court. It's up to Britain to propose something. But it's unclear what Britain could propose. It's unclear what it would propose, as we've just pointed out, because of the divisions internally. But it's unclear that even if it decides something, it could propose something that uh, the EU would accept. I just spoke to one senior diplomat in Brussels just a few days ago and asked, well, what sort of room for renegotiation might there be? And the answer was, well, we could change the colour the paper is printed on. Taking inspiration from the FT, perhaps. And finally, Moranix, the only thing that I think could substantially change to get Mrs May's deal through the Commons would be something towards the backstop, which has become this totemic issue for Tory Brexiters. But as Martin has just said, there is no basis at all the EU is going to want to reopen the withdrawal agreement talks, not least because, as we've seen, EU member states have started to voice their concerns. And the Commission said in those last stages of last week, as we came up to the summit to sign off the withdrawal agreement. We've got this deal. We are not unpicking it now. It has to remain. So the idea that they're going to change that seems very unlikely at this stage. So it's all looking very, very difficult for Mrs May once yeah, again. Absolutely. No, no, she's staring disaster in the face at this point. And um, also on that idea of sort of further tweaking the backstop in the agreement before the crucial vote on the 11th, she's in serious danger of over-promising and under-delivering because even if she does get some sort of tweak, is it one that's really going to bring enough Brexiters on side? It would be very hard to imagine what that change could be, to be honest, particularly because of this mood change we've talked about a bit where people People are hardening their positions both on the Brexit side and on the Remain side and increasingly unwilling to countenance compromise. And that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next Saturday for yet more Brexit. Thank you very much to Jim, Robert, Martin and Miranda for joining us. And in the meantime, if you like this podcast and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer 50. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Harry Robertson. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.